Here in 2 Peter, we've got Peter at the end of his life. Peter in his final spiritual maturity, and I think we can learn a lot from that, but we can learn here the end point of one of, I guess, God's most faithful servants in the end. And this is him in his maturity, and I think we're all on a journey towards that final maturity. And it's rather like reading 2 Timothy 4, <clears throat> or indeed the whole of 2 Timothy. You see Paul likewise at the end of his race, and you see a man in spiritual maturity. And so what have we got from uh, <clears throat> 2 Peter 1 and 2 then that reflects his maturity? Well, he starts off in chapter 1, verse 4, we've been given exceeding great and precious promises. Well, we know from Galatians 3 that we who are baptized into Christ, all the promises that were made to the seed of Abraham, that is Jesus in the singular, become true of us. And this is the basis, really, of our hope, the, the promises. And he says that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So how come that promises of eternal inheritance in God's kingdom on earth, how can they deliver us from the corruption that is in this world and all the lust which is, which is in this world and within, in that sense, our own nature? Well, if we are convinced <clears throat> that we will live forever in God's kingdom, if we take God at his word and we believe those promises, then we are not going to be living for this world with all its lust, etc., and we, in that sense, are enabled to escape from all that, but we escape from it because of the hope that we have been given. It is the future hope, the future perspective that we have, that we really will live eternally, that delivers us from living according to the spirit of, of this world. And so he says <clears throat> in verse 11 that an abundant um, entrance will be given us into the everlasting kingdom so <clears throat> that kingdom he perceives as abundant now this is a theme that God is not just giving us eternity and we have just about scraped into it when we shouldn't really be there but he kind of turn a blind eye to all our sin that is a wrong view God has counted us as if we are Christ because we are in him by baptism and life in him, we are counted as him. And there is therefore <clears throat> something extremely abundant in how he has treated us. It's rather like all the gospel writers record the miracle of the, the feeding of the 5,000, and they all make the same point, that there was left over and above, as one of them says, um, all the baskets full of uh, leftovers. And that Greek word, they all use the idea of over and above, that which was left over. This is always poorly translated, and it's this idea of abundance. God didn't just give the food that represented, as John 6 makes clear, the, uh, the bread of life, the, the manna from heaven, the eternal life. He gave it abundantly. So it's not that he just gave us the minimum. This future that he worked out for us right at the beginning of the world, this is abundant. He thought, what is the, the most wonderful thing I could give them? Not just eternal life, but as Jesus said, I came that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. Now, if nothing else, reflection on that should inspire us 
to a super generosity, as the Sermon on the Mount makes clear, giving good measure uh, to others, fully pressed down and running over, because that is the nature of the grace that we have received. And this lifts life onto a totally higher level, that we're not minimalists getting away with the bare minimum, thinking that, yeah, well, God has given me the uh, <clears throat> sort of bare minimum. He's not giving us any bare minimum at all. He's giving us something that we totally don't deserve, which is eternal life, and not only eternal life, but life more abundantly. When you think about the death of Jesus, <clears throat> which is what we're here to think about, um, the question always arises, why the cross? Why was this method, uh, I won't say required, but why was it in the end the one that was chosen? And Jesus willingly went along with it. Well, I think that, if you like, theologically, our salvation was possible just at the drop of a, of a pin. God could have said, well, I save you, I forgive you, uh, I save you, give you eternity and salvation, and that's it. Jesus, in that sense, did not have to die, in the sense that God was not bound, logically bound, by the need uh, to produce the red liquid of his Son. Uh, on, uh, on the cross before he could sort of do anything for us not at all and yet this was the way that it all worked out Jesus likewise could have in a classical sense drunk the, the cup of hemlock the, drunk, the cup of poison or he could have slit his own throat um, fulfilling the types I suppose of the animals being slaughtered but he died as he did at the maximum possible public shame and uh, awful torture to the end and this connects with something we read in Hebrews when we read about that great salvation well that implies that there are a range there's a range of salvations but he achieved for us that great salvation and this is why he was so highly exalted according to Philippians 2 because he had humiliated himself. You remember that song of, uh, hymn of praise there, the seven phases of the Lord's humiliation are matched by the seven stages of his exaltation. So then, that great salvation, there was a, a range of possibility, I think, and Jesus achieved this to the maximum. And the result of that, for you and me, is that the life that we shall eternally live is a life more abundant and Peter's perceived that in his maturity at the end here when he talks about that abundant entrance into his kingdom time and again here in 2 Peter 1 he talks about the need to remember to remember the words uh, he says verse 12 I want to put you in remem remembrance of these things though you know them uh, verse 13 uh, to put you in remembrance Verse 15, I want you to have these things always in remembrance. Um, chapter 2, verse 3. Oh, sorry, I have the, um, the wrong reference there. But he talks about how he wants us to remember the words of the Lord Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 1. Stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken by the prophets. I think he means there the New Testament prophets. 
But the point is, he keeps saying, remember, remember, remember the words of Jesus. And yet, Peter was the one, in Luke 22:61, who when he had betrayed Jesus, effectively, he, or denied him, he remembered the words of Jesus and wept those bitter tears of uh, ineffable regret. And so he knew that everybody knew that. And so when he keeps saying, remember, 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 he's alluding back to his own remembering of the Lord's words after he had denied him. And so on that basis of his own personal failure, he is exhorting others. Now, for many people, I think, who had failed as Peter did so publicly and dramatically, there would have been left for them a life of melancholy regret, just sort of uh, hoping against hope that maybe it'll all be okay at Judgment Day. But Peter was not like that. He really believed in forgiveness. And therefore, he's unashamed all through his letters to continue alluding to his own failure as the basis of exhorting others. And don't forget, he was uh, the leader, really, of the uh, Jewish block in the church. He had been called, really, to have that ministry to the Jews, as Paul was to the Gentiles. And he was the leader, really, in many ways, or one of the great leaders of the early church. And here he is, showing his weakness. Jesus said that when he was converted, he would strengthen his brethren. That's Luke 22, verse 32. And he uses that same word in chapter 1 here, verse 12, when he, he says that he wants them to be established. It's the same word, to be strengthened. And you've got the same word, First of Peter, chapter 5, uh, verse 10, when he says that he prays that the God of all grace would strengthen you. That's the same word. When you are converted, strengthen your brethren. And uh, again to Peter 3.17. He says he doesn't want them to fall from their own steadfastness, from their own strength. And so it was on the basis of the fact that he had been forgiven. You remember Jesus stands by another charcoal fire just as he had stood by a charcoal fire before uh, when Peter denied him three times and by a charcoal fire he three times as it were undoes the denials and says do you love me Peter then strengthen uh, your brethren and uh, go and feed my sheep etc so then these letters are Peter in his final maturity doing that which Jesus had called him to do on the basis of his own uh, repentance and experience of forgiveness. Now you don't have to be a drug addict or, or a mass murderer or whatever to be able to, to know how Peter felt because we have all denied Jesus and it all comes back to our perception of whether we realize that as we should. Now in chapter 1 verse 15 he talks about his upcoming death. He says after my, de my decease and it's this Greek word exodus very same word in Luke 9.31 about the exodus of Jesus at the transfiguration where Moses and Elijah comfort the Lord about the exodus that he was to achieve at Jerusalem. And so Peter saw in his death the death of Jesus. And of course we live that out in our baptism when we died with Christ and we put ourselves in water. And yet what that means in practice is that when it comes our turn to die, as 
unless the Lord comes, it will, we are dying with Jesus. And let's just remember that, because at some point, if Jesus doesn't come back, we shall, you know, it will be our turn. And we will face up to that, and even if uh, it comes suddenly and unexpectedly to us, uh, in a car smash or something like that, we all the same do think about our death. And your death, and my death, is a death with him. And the next we know will be a resurrection with him. So then, one theme you get from reading Peter and his maturity is this complete Christ-centeredness that he has. And, as I say, all the time, an awareness of um, his own failure and his own forgiveness. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, about the false teachers that he's having to, to fight against, he says, they even deny the Lord who bought them. Now, who denied the Lord who bought him? It was Peter. This is what he's almost famed for. He denied his Lord. And yet he says these terrible men, they even deny the Lord that bought them, as if that is the worst thing you could possibly do. And, of course, those who had known Peter, and Peter is writing really to his own converts, probably those that had been baptized by him on the day of Pentecost, who had all known, of course, the story that he had denied Jesus and ran off into the darkness, etc. So Peter didn't take the view, well, you know, I can't judge, I can't criticize after what I did. He realizes he's been forgiven. And so that is why he can say this quite clearly, that this is the worst possible thing you can do, and I did it, but I repented. So he really is really confident about his receipt of forgiveness, and there is no reason why we should not have that confidence. But you won't have that sense of confidence uh, and this uh, motivation that Peter had unless you face up to your own sin. And the problem with middle-class, going-to-church kind of Christianity is that there very often is lacking that conviction of personal failure that we should have. And that is why we're here focusing our minds upon the cross of Christ, because it is that which elicits from us, I think, an awareness of the depth of our own failure. And I think that's what Peter did. He denied Jesus, and where did he go? He ran off into the night. But he says in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, I take from that that he sneaked back, probably disguised his face, uh, and sneaked back and watched the end, not with Mary and the others and John standing at the foot of the cross, but somewhere hidden in the crowd, and he saw it. And that is uh, why I think he alludes so often in his writings to the the actual crucifixion. Now, as with Paul, you can work out in Peter's letters that once every two or three verses, he is alluding to words in the Gospels. So, the record of the Gospels was absolutely imprinted on his mind. And when he says, remember, remember, remember the words of Jesus, don't forget he was writing to largely illiterate people. And their knowledge of the gospel would have been in terms of them having memorized the gospels. There was a tradition that the gospel of Mark was memorized by baptismal candidates. And uh, the way it's written uh, in in Greek, and if you translate it into Aramaic, as has been done, um, 
there's a lot of rhyming words, there's uh, the whole structure of the thing is structured in order to aid memorization. So he's saying, look, keep on reciting it to yourselves. And what does that mean for us in the literate age in which we live? It means every day make sure that you read something out of the Gospels. That's what it means. Have him continually before you. And it's not just that Peter alludes to words and incidents in the Gospels. It goes deeper than that. In uh, 2 Peter 2 here, um, verses, uh, well, from 5 down to 8, he quotes two examples, Noah and Lot. And it's interesting that Jesus put Noah and Lot together in Luke 17, 26, verse 32. Uh, also when he's talking about warnings for the last generation. It's interesting that those same two people are put together by Peter in talking about warnings for the last generation. So he really had assimilated the Gospels right into his very fabric of, of his thinking. And he repeatedly calls Jesus Lord. If you look at my book on Peter, you'll see a little uh, statistical uh, thing about the titles that Peter uses for Jesus. And if you put his words in the Gospels and his spoken words as they're transcripted in the Acts and his two letters, if you put them all together, you can see that over time he comes to appreciate the the greatness of Jesus because he uses more and more exalted language to describe Jesus. He keeps on referring, him, referring to him as the Lord more and more and more. He says in chapter 2 verse 9 <clears throat> the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. Well the Lord to Peter was the Lord Jesus rather than uh, the Lord God. And I think he's referring back to how the Lord Jesus had prayed for him, knowing the temptation that was to come upon him in the high priest's house, knowing, as the record says, Satan's desire to have him. And Jesus prayed for Peter and, in that sense, saved him out of that temptation, ultimately. And so he, he's saying that, you know, what happened to me can happen to you. The Lord Jesus is alive and active. Now, he goes uh, on in uh, chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 13. He talks about the condemnation of the wicked. And he, he talks uh, about um, how they will receive the reward of unrighteousness. Now, he's quoting from Acts 1.18, the very language used about Judas, who betrayed the Lord for the reward of iniquity or unrighteousness. And yet, really, Judas and Peter, as has very often been pointed out, did effectively the same thing at the same time. They both betrayed Jesus. But Peter repented and was saved. Judas couldn't bring himself to that uh, repentance before God, and so he, he killed himself, and will, it seems, not, uh, not be saved. There's another thing that comes out in considering Peter's sort of drive to maturity, 
and that is his increasing sensitivity to sin. One little point uh, that I find fascinating in verse 13, he says that these people are like those who count it pleasure to riot or to get drunk in the daytime. These people get drunk in the daytime. And yet, in Acts 2 verse 15, when they come to Peter and say, when he's speaking in tongues and that, and say, you know, you're you and your, your disciples, you're, you're drunk. He says, and there's a, I've always sort of smiled at what appears to me uh, a naivety in Peter at that point in Acts 2.15. He says, no, 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 they can't possibly be drunk because it's only, it's only in the morning. It's, only, it's the daytime. Of course they're not drunk, it's daytime. And I would say that over 20, 25 years of ministering the gospel here in Eastern Europe and... Uh, talking to people and reading the Bible with people, I would say probably about ten times I have heard that questioned. Don't forget, we live here in a society where alcoholism is uh, probably the worst in the world, uh, where there's drunk people all over the place at all times of day and night, and people have said, what does he mean? How can you be drunk? It's only the daytime. Like, was he so naive as to not understand that people, like, get drunk all, all around the clock? Like, did the guy never, like live in the former Soviet Union or something. And we may smile at that, but it, it's, uh, it's true, um, and it's occurred to me, uh, quite apart from that, wasn't he a bit naive in saying that? Look, come on, it's only daytime, they can't be drunk. Well, I think he's alluding back to that, where he says here, now, many years later, at the end of his life, these people get drunk in the daytime. I think that he had grown in his perception of human sin. That's, I think, the point. So we see a number of things going on here. We see an increasing uh, saturation with the words and the spirit of the Lord Jesus, as in the Gospels, an increasing awareness of human sin, an, incre an increasing recognition of the Lordship and the majesty of Jesus, and an increasing sense that really and truly we will be saved. Now those elements are the very same elements I think you see in Paul's drive to spiritual maturity. And I think we see them in us too. That we also, by God's grace, come to realize the significance of our sin and the sin of others. We come to see the wonder of his forgiveness, the certainty of our salvation, the utter lordship of Jesus, we have him far more ever before us in our hearts and minds, and especially we are the more and more focused on the simple fact that he died for me.